everybody. Welcome to the Shtick and Mortar Show. Thanks for clicking. I'm John. I'm Zach. And today we're here with David Chack. Hello, David. Hi, everybody. So who are you? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> Isn't that the eternal question, right? It is. The eternal wandering question for wandering Jews. So give us your quick uh, background. You're involved in Jewish theater. You're mm-hmm. involved in Jewish film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the Jewish part comes naturally. Yeah. Yeah. The film and theater part, I had to kind of, you know, make up as I went along. But it also came somewhat naturally because uh, all of uh, my life, I was devoted to performance in one way or another. When I was two, they said I was singing, you know, constantly. I just kept doing it. So uh, eventually they decided they wanted to shut me up. You know, and they sent me to synagogue because they weren't going to go. So I wound up being the guy that went to synagogue or the boy that went to synagogue and uh, sang everything. I sang all the Jewish services. I sang, you know, Hanukkah stuff. I sang uh, I hated Christmas stuff. So that's how they knew it was a real Jew. (laughs) You know, if you hate Christmas, then you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. So tell, give us a quick uh, resume. You're doing what currently? So now I'm an artistic producing director of a kind of theater company. I hate to say the word company because it sounds like we're, we have a season and we sell tickets constantly and you can get a subscription and that's not what we do. And yet... We do produce shows and we do theater in the Chicago area and I've even produced outside of the Chicago area through Spiel and the idea is to develop work out of identity, heritage and culture, some of which is Jewish related, some of which is feminist related, some of which is other cultures and other uh, ethnicity related or else there's a blend of the two. I'm a big believer in uh, hybridity of culture, how culture comes together and influences each other and then actually create something different. So it's like adaptation and transformation. Mm-hmm. And that's a spiel performing identity. Right, right, exactly. That's what we call ourselves, and, and I call ourselves that. So. But you also uh, teach theater? Mm-hmm. I teach at DePaul University, and I teach Holocaust theater and performance and the impact of Jewish-American writers and performers on American theater and performance. Well, thanks for coming. Yeah, yeah. Good to be here with Shtick and Dreck. I mean, what do you call it? <laughs> That's our new name. That's Shtick your new Dreck. name, Shtick and Dreck. Shtick and Dreck are the characters that personas will take on. Yeah. Together we form the mortar for Shtick and Mortar. Okay. So how right. did you land in cultural theater? Yeah, well, I mean, it just felt natural. I always knew I was going to go in theater and I was always drawn to Jewish culture Mm -hmm. and to the kind of Jewish, like, um, what do they call it? Not not valences. It's like inflections Mm -hmm. that are in American theater and performance. So, for instance, I was one of the first people to say that the musical Carousel is a Jewish musical. And everybody said, are you kidding? You know, they're doing it now at the Lyric Opera. A beautiful performance. So, you know, what makes that Jewish? It's about this Carousel Barker who tries to get people in and then he's a 
ne'er-do-well and he steals things and he wants to, you know, pounce on Julie's bones. And, you know, that's, as far as, you know, a lot of people are concerned, nice Jewish boys don't do stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But he really was a Jewish character that came from a play by a Hungarian Jewish playwright, Ferenc Molnar. And the play was called Lilium. And the play is about this carousel barker who is, in a sense, the wandering Jew. Mm-hmm. And he can never find a place where he feels happy. And then he and he can never make real money. So when he really does fall for Julie, uh, he needs to get money and he robs a Jewish banker. So he brings together both the lower class, wandering kind of gypsy style Jew, the uh, Austudent, the outside Jew, mm-hmm. with the Jew who's the upper-class, aristocratic, elite Jew who's trying to make it in society and who's trying to gain a social status. Mm-hmm. And that was Ferenc Molnar's uh, play. That's what it was about. It's this very expressionistic play about the outlaw. And he used a Jewish character for that to show the dichotomy of these two Jewish uh, people. And so they took Lilium and brought it to the United States. And the person who played Lilium was Joseph Schildekraut who's known as the father in The Diary of Anne Frank. He was in the original Broadway production in the oh, wow. original movie. And his father was one of the great Yiddish theater actors, Rudolf Schildekraut. So they chose Joseph Schildekraut because of his Jewish background, yeah. and he played Lilium. He played the, uh, the Barker. And then, getting to the musical now, Rodgers and Hammerstein, uh, actually before Hammerstein, when... Um, Hart, Lorenz Hart, Larry Hart, was working with uh, Richard Rogers. He wanted to do Lilium. He thought this was the story of his life. And then at the same time, he was going through all sorts of mental issues and problems, having nervous breakdowns and resorting to alcohol, and eventually died very young. Mm -hmm. And Hammerstein came and became the partner with uh, Rogers, and they wrote Carousel. And that, and then they took out all the Jewishness, <laughs> right? Which is, you know, what yeah. American Jews do. Well, that comes to my next question, which right. is, when I think of Jewish theater, I always think of it as the story of a culture within a culture, mm-hmm. and you know, that's a very dynamic state of being because when we first came here, we were a culture coming from another culture, and um, we're all wandering. Unless we've landed in Israel, but that's another story. But how have you seen that umbrella expand or shrink as into the Jewish stories presented in Jewish theater, the culture within a culture story? Right. Well, I mean, it is a culture within or maybe alongside or sometimes outside a culture. Uh-huh. You know, I think of us as constantly having to deal with living in two worlds. Uh-huh. And this is actually the subtitle of one of the great Jewish plays ever written, the Dybbuk. Mm-hmm. The subtitle of it is Between Two Worlds. And it's about living both in the world that we have to live in and then the world that we want to live in, the world that's going to accept us, the world that's not going to see us as being the outsider. And yet at the same time, I think Jews want to be the outsider. Jews want to be different. That's one reason why we're so into comedy and why we do commenting and satirical stuff on politics and on just everyday life, you know, like Seinfeld. 
It's all about, you know what? You want that? No, I don't want that. Why don't you want that? I want it. Why do you want it? I don't know what I want it. I just want it, you know? And they're constantly commenting on the commenting, mm-hmm. but doing very meta stuff. Well, this is yeah. all about the Talmud. That's what the Talmud is. It's all hypercritical thinking. And it just became inbred in our cultural DNA. Mm-hmm. So Jews in this country now have been accepted in America probably longer than almost any other country that we've lived in, except maybe Spain before they decided, you know, they got sick of us too. So we, um, we've been accepted here and we feel comfortable here and we've kind of toned down a sense of our outsiderness, but I also think it's still there. And I think that we're, like you say, we're a people kind of unto ourselves, but we're also part of. Mm-hmm. And we want to be part of, I mean, and, and we want others to kind of join with us because it's, the journey is just so much more fun. Yeah. You know, you need yeah. to have people who are other than you too, even though we're maybe the uh, quintessential other. Right. You were speaking earlier when you were younger as a young Jewish boy, you, you just, your family couldn't get you to shut up. Right. You wanted to be in front of, uh, you wanted to be a performer, you wanted to be loud, you wanted to be singing. Do you think there's something in the Jewish tradition that maybe suppresses uh, some performances at a young age that then, by rebellion, creates so many Jewish entertainers or Jewish comics? Well, I mean, I don't know about the suppression. It's it's interesting. People often say how their parents want them to be a doctor. Yeah. You know, you're not really an adult until you're a doctor and you're married. You know, until that point, you have to just pay homage to your mother and uh, do everything that she wants you to do. But I think actually Jews love when their kids are performers. And I think they secretly, you know, nurture that. Uh And that the Jewish stage mom, like in uh, Gypsy, you know, which is a very Jewish show as well, is constantly pushing her kids, her daughters, in this case, uh, Gypsy Rose Lee, who wasn't Jewish, but the show is written by Jews. And it's about that kind of pushy, get on there and succeed and really show them how you can win. And through performance, we can win. And and through theater, we can win. And theater is an inherent Jewish uh, trait or Jewish uh, cultural um, event. I mean, the holiday of Purim, which is part of our culture, which is where performance comes from, you know, like right embedded in Judaism was where the Yiddish theater came from. And the Yiddish theater became this amazing incubator in America. I mean, it's really an American story. It's not a European story. It's a story of these incredible Yiddish theater performers, actors, designers, directors, producers, business people who created Broadway, created Hollywood, created the whole structure that it now hangs on, and is still, you know, going strong and hopefully including more people in it. I think they are. And you see more um, Latino people now and African-Americans now. Are, and Jews and African-Americans have always had a very special relationship, a kind of love-hate relationship, which is also very interesting. But the performance is just embedded. So I don't think it's suppression as much as survival. Yeah, It's like the way I used to think about my mother's cooking. <laughs> you know, I, uh-huh. I learned to cook because she was terrible at it. And I, I was starving for the most part. Right. And, you know, so that's, that's why I started becoming 
a great cook that I am today as well. So as Jews become more accepted in American popular culture or American culture, do you see the level of nuance in performance change, the, how they nuance their Jewishness? Yeah, yeah, uh, very much so. Um, and at the same time, still trying to hold on to that sense of being the outsider. I mean, it's like John Stewart. You know, he's yeah. so popular in this country. People love him. And he's able, you know, different than someone like Stephen Colbert, who's like in your face, at you, and just, he's so amazing also. I mean, I think his improv riffs and everything is just beyond the beyond. He's like a Robin Williams, you know, who's on hyper steroids. But um, John Stewart is able to both be a puppy dog and lovable mm -hmm. and also get you with the zinger. Yeah. And he still keeps that sense of being the outsider and wants to. Yeah. So we've, it's become, that also has become like part of our cultural DNA. Mm -hmm. We want to be on the outside. We want to be able to uh, mm -hmm. comment and be satirical and be biting like, um, comedian, yeah, the the angry. He was on the John Stewart show, and now he's broken away. He's Lewis on his own. Lewis, right? Yeah, yeah. So Lewis and I were in theater together, and oh, really? Lewis, hear me. I was the Jew in the company. <laughs> you weren't. I know you've come out now, and everybody <laughs> knows you're Jewish because you scream it all the time. But when I was in Street Seventy, I was the guy who took off for holidays, not you. <laughs> anyway, so that's, so that's a claim to fame that you were the more observant. I was, I yeah. was. So I was an outsider both in synagogue and in the theater because, you know, they never knew what I was. Yeah, uh, it's funny that I think that um, to be a comic, you have to have the um, uh, self criticism. You have to be able to look inside. You have to be able to denigrate yourself a little bit for comedy. And I mm -hmm. think that that criticism you're talking about a little bit is so prevalent in, in Judaism. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that the reason that I was able to be funny as a kid was because no matter how funny I was, my mother would say, oh, that's almost, that's almost funny. <laughs> that's right. She's just like, a little more effort, you could have been real funny. Right. That, but oh, that was so close. But that's encouragement as well. It's like the story sure. about Mel Brooks in, um, in the Catskills. You know, he was a tumbler. And a tumbler is the guy who gets everybody ready for the yeah, show and he right. would warm them up, you know? So he would take these two suitcases and put bricks in them and then he'd wear a fur coat and he'd walk out onto the diving board of the pool in the resort you know in, in the Catskills and he'd say that's it I'm tired of it and I'm ending it all and then he'd fall off into the pool with these suitcases of bricks he'd just sink like yeah. a lead pipe and, you know, the old Jewish ladies are going, eh, it's not so funny. I don't know. <laughs> nah, not so good. No. <laughs> well, I've that, heard better. That brings yeah. me to the next point about Jewish humor and Jewish theater is this attitude of moral authority and authority. Like, we have the right to sit on the mountaintop and tell you what's wrong with everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when I think about Jewish theater... You know, over time, you know, I think about the political theater, mm -hmm. you know, the socialist theater from the 20s and 30s, of course, a moral authority. Mm -hmm. I think about, you know, the sweet musicals, which always had the message. Mm -hmm. you know, or I think about um, the mystical or historic plays, which constantly drive home the moral authority message. 
Do you think that that template has been adopted by other cultural theaters? Or do you think it's naturally why cultural theater evolves from a a common narrative, a historic common narrative? Oh, it's definitely in other cultures. I mean, you can see it in Latino culture, you can see it in African-American culture, but it's always um, going through the filter of that particular culture. Mm -hmm. So the stories of African-Americans... And the stories of folk tales and African folk tales and and uh, jazz coming out of an African music and out of a um, more of a uh, kind of Haitian music as well. Um, you see all of that coming together so that it's distinctly in gospel music and church music. Yeah. I mean, then it becomes embedded in their culture, and yet there's still you know the the knowledge that they're the outsider, the knowledge that they're going to have to figure out how to get around, you know, the white man yeah. and um, that they're always uh, uh, trying to, to find a home yeah. and, and trying to be comfortable with each other and be comfortable with each own, each own's ethnicity. Um, there was a, a really fine production and it was uh, heralded in New York of a Chinese theater called the Ma Yi Theater. And they did this play called Little, you know, somewhat known play called Awake and Sing by Clifford Odets, which, as you know, is one of the great social dramas of our time, very left-wing drama, and about a Jewish family, you know, struggling to make it, struggling to, you know, bring in the dollar and not be um, the underclass and not be oppressed. And when people saw these Chinese people do it, they actually had one, really two Jewish people, because one of the Chinese... Um, people in it is actually Jewish. I know her. And um, and then they had another Jewish man in it. And the rest were Chinese Americans. And the Chinese people came and the Asian American people came and said, wow, that's so much a part of our culture. It's exactly what we live through. Mm-hmm. And so we all you know, have yeah. that. But when you see it through that prism and the lens and the filter of the particular culture, it does take on other... Um, reson- other harmonies, other resonances that, you know, it's like when Death of a Salesman was done in Yiddish. Mm-hmm. People said, now it's really singing. Now <laughs> yeah. we understand when Willie Loman comes in with his bags and everybody goes, oi, you know, this is this, you know, and attention must be paid. And you start to hear the language and the lines that Miller wrote, and he wrote with a Yiddish inflection. And his neighbor next door mm. is clearly Jewish. Yeah. And that's what he was. He was writing about exile. Willie Loman, the low man, the yeah. Shlemiel. He's the Shlemiel who's not paid attention to. And he's very much a part of Miller's family. Yeah, He's his father. He's his grandfather. So all this rich theater comes out of the pain of being the outsider. Mm-hmm. And so does all this humor. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of my favorite lines is one of Sarah Silverman, mm-hmm. who said, you know, the Holocaust isn't always funny. Right. You know, and since you teach, um, you know, the theater of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. I remember when I was a, a young boy going to my grandparents' house and seeing their brothers and sisters all with the stars of David's on their arm telling their stories 
about the different little shows they would do for each other in the camps and little poetry readings mm-hmm. and that even the drawings that they draw on the toilet paper and they actually kept a record of all this mm-hmm. and it was very powerful and when you say that part of the Jewish upbringing is to put on a show after they told their stories they would always say now kids put on a show for us mm-hmm. and almost all the families I know had a similar experience and the mm-hmm. kids were always doing shows for their parents and grandparents look at me mom and like me because I can do this. Yeah, yeah. It's very much a part of the culture. And uh, Tamara, for instance, at DePaul, uh, tomorrow's, um, tomorrow evening is the beginning of Holocaust Commemoration Day, Yom HaShoah. So we're doing a staged reading of the really fine play by uh, the playwright Joshua Sobel called Ghetto, which was done here actually to an acclaimed production and Julia Neary, who... Uh, passed away this past year was in it and um, it was she won a Jeff award for her uh, portrayal of the dummy of the marionette who's in the show of the of the Jewish id that's throughout that entire uh, play but it's about a troupe a theater troupe the Vilna theater troupe Mm. that was in fact performing while they were in the ghetto that the Nazis created for the Jews to live in until they were taken away for the selections at the concentration camps and the death camps. And Sobel researched it and uh, took all the characters that were from that production and from the productions that they did and created it into a play about the Vilna theater troupe in the ghetto, and that's called Ghetto. And performances were done throughout. Even, in fact, he had seen the reason he he thought of doing the play was he was doing a little research on something else, and he came across this Holocaust memoir. And in it, someone had written, "Theater cannot be performed in a graveyard." Mm-hmm. And he started researching it and found out that this fellow was one of the scribes in the Vilna ghetto. And this theater company was performing and mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. protesting their performance because they, he felt they were being complicitous with the Nazis and doing what they wanted to be done to, to create this facade and this charade that everything would be all right. Yeah. When in fact yeah. it was a graveyard, right. it was death. So yeah. that's what the play is about is who's manipulating who and who's in charge and this, you know, constant um, self-critical uh, mm-hmm. side of are we actually in charge of our own fate? Are we ever in charge of who we are as Jews and yeah. even as human beings? Well, this brings me to our next segment. Ah which is a little more lighthearted. Mm. But I'm going to name some Jewish plays I wish there were. Mm. And you can tell me if it's already been done. Okay. And since we were talking about complicity, I think my the name of my first play is Mom and Dad, I'm a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> Has that been done yet? I mean, if that was done in the Lower East Side in Manhattan, Mom and Dad are Republican, there'd be such controversy, right? He's coming out to his parents, sit down, I need to tell you, 
I'm a, I'm I'm voting for you know Ted Cruz or something like that. Right. Except today there are lots of Jewish Republicans and they're starting to grow, especially with Netanyahu being invited to the Congress and overriding yeah. Obama, and he's taking all the Republican Jews with him and even you know well, I gathering sort of more. Feel like they're dancing in a graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Well, I wish they were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would. I, there are a number of uh, Jewish Republicans that I would love to uh, be put into uh, into excommunication in Judaism. Unfortunately, we don't have the power to do that. But I'd like to, uh, and I won't name names. But all right. My next title for our next show, and John and I, if it hasn't been done, are going to commission it. Sure. At no cost to us, of course. Yes. Um, half Jewish and all messed up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Has that been done? Oh, it's being done all the time. I mean, it was done since the beginning uh, with Yiddish theater and about, you know, boy meets goy and, you know, Jews uh, trying to figure out how to live in a society where they could actually not only fall in love with someone who wasn't Jewish, but marry them and, you know, have sex with them and actually... Uh, it would be okay. You know, they wouldn't be sent to the gas chamber for doing it, except maybe their mother might say, oh, wait a minute, it's all right, Sid, and Ian and I'll put my head in the oven over there. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's uh, you could say, from AB's Irish Rose on up, it's about, it's constantly been done. So there was a new play, and I'm blanking on the title of it, and it's about a uh, relationship, uh, Jewish boy and girl and, and then a non-Jewish girl meet and they go backwards in time to their beginning meeting and um, and it's a musical and and, a, and you know it, it's actually quite um, quite telling how these stories keep coming up over and over again even though you would think we'd be over it and everybody would be used to kind of the intermarriage or interdating thing but it still keeps coming up and I think it's because People are still trying to reconcile that Jewish culture and Jewish life can continue mm-hmm. in relationships yeah. that are intermarried, and that that's that's actually possible, or that or maybe there are challenges there, yeah. and and they keep coming up over and over again. Well, there's the flip side to that equation, which is um, that my next title. Henry Louis Gates told me I'm Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think he told Obama that when Obama said the policeman and he had to get together because they wouldn't let him into his home and have a beer together. And Henry Louis Gates said, you know, you're being too much of a conciliator here. You must be Jewish. But um, yeah, Henry Louis Gates, I think, does amazing work with African-American culture and has shown how African-American stories have an inherent uh, way of being told an aesthetic that's really uh, inherent in the African-American culture and in the ways that they've told stories for for centuries. And his approach has has actually been quite influential uh, to me. I met Henry Louis Gates. You did? Yeah. And um, he came to a... um, a tribute to Elie Wiesel, the um, Nobel Prize laureate, and he gave a talk about the outsiderness of African American culture and how Wiesel's work had influenced him. So you know they go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. very powerful. Mm-hmm. Very powerful. And then I only have one more for you, ah. which is Selma, 
the grandmother of civil rights. Right. Right. Well, actually, whenever I think of Selma, I mean, everybody's thinking about the ways that African-Americans were allowed to vote and they wouldn't register them. And, you know, there's that great scene with Oprah and how she's just standing there and she can't believe they keep asking her questions that she knows the answers to or, you know, they're trying to nail her. But I think of my Aunt Selma, basically, and how she, um, you know, was was very close to her nephew, probably too close. You know, there was a rabbi standing next to Martin Luther King as he crossed the bridge. Yeah. But in the movie and in the promo pictures, there's no rabbi. Right, Mm -hmm. right. So they decided that probably wasn't for them. I don't think it was their focus, number one. Yeah. So, I mean, people have gotten on them for that. And Abraham Joshua Heschel was there. And he, he wasn't there in the first the first time they went over. And then he was protesting in New York. He actually uh, was a good friend of Martin Luther King's. I'm working on a play about oh. Abraham Joshua Heschel now. And he was in New York and uh, protested at the FBI building. And he sent them a letter. They actually uh, brought him in and he discussed it with the head of the bureau there. And... Uh, then he went down and joined King in Selma and carried the Torah with him and showed the solidarity that a lot of the Jewish community did not do. Mm-hmm. And Heschel was one of the few who really stood up and said, as Jews, we have to take a stand here and stand with Martin Luther King because not only is it the right thing to do, but we should know better than anybody else. Look what happened to us in the Holocaust. Look what happened to my mother and to my family. And we endured uh, the, the denigration of living in a country that didn't recognize our humanity. How can we live in this country now that doesn't recognize the humanity yeah. of the African-Americans? Yeah. Yeah. We have to stand with them. And I think that's exactly the pushback Netanyahu is getting right now also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So... So you're also, Spiel uh, has a show coming up, uh, Cities of Light. We do, we do. Thank you for mentioning that, sure, John. Sure, of course. <laughs> yes. Well, so why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about uh, the play, what your part is, uh, you know, go ahead, plug away. Sure. Well, Rebecca Joy Fletcher is really the play part of Cities of Light. She has created this amazing show of East European Jewish cabaret artists who not only brought in their own Jewishness, but were just some of the great cabaret artists of Europe. You know, yeah. people like Kurt Weil and others who really created a music and a way of performing that was picked up by other great cabaret artists like Edith Piaf. Yeah. And they did Jewish material as well. Mm-hmm. So she's brought all this together. She's done amazing research and gone to Europe and gone to Tel Aviv and gone to Hebrew University and gone into the archives. There was great cabaret in early Palestine, Tel Aviv as well. And she brings in Hebrew and French and Yiddish and German and Polish. And it's a lovely show, but it's it's more than just singing these songs. Yeah. It's also her searching for her identity as an American uh, uh, Jewish woman. And she kind of goes back into the past searching for these great cabaret artists. So it's a story of her identity as well. And then I'm just there really as a pretty face. I'm, <laughs> I'm there to... Um, You're the titillation that brings... Exactly, right, right. That's why my face is on the poster. 
And I'm there to kind of show the in parallel what was going on in America. In the 1930s and 40s, great American Jewish composers were writing wonderful songs yeah. out of a lot of the themes that we've just talked about. So I'm not going to right. go through that again because you're going to be tested after this <laughs> Very uh, good. podcast yeah. and we'll see whether you remember everything. Well, the show is going to be at stage 773. Seven, it's going to start on May 14th and run through May 17th and then it's moving over to the Skokie Theater May 27th through 31st. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And you can find out more about that on our website. Which we'll have up on Chicken and Mortar, and you can also visit SpielTheater.com. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. It's, it's been, a been delightful. Deli- Let's do it again, boys. I'd sure. like that. Right. With a little chopped liver next time. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime that there's kvetching, I said it correctly this time, I'd like to think that Chicken and Mortar is going to get right in the middle of that somewhere. Absolutely. Nor be spirit is alive. Well, thank you, David Chack. I'm Zach. I'm John. And this has been the Shtick and Mortar Show. Find us at shtickandmortar.com or check out our Facebook page. You can also find us on iTunes. Our podcasts are now available. So check out iTunes. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.